Uh, hello and welcome back to Supreme Myths. My name is Eric Siegel, and uh, this is a podcast about Supreme Court myths, legal myths, and all kinds of other myths. Uh, my guest today uh, is Mary Ziegler, the Stearns Miller Weaver Professor of Law at Florida State University Law School. I'm so happy to have her here. Mary is a graduate of Harvard and Harvard College and Law. Uh, her expertise <laughs> include legal history, constitutional law, family law, reproductive rights law, and a bunch of other types of law. Uh, she has written numerous articles and get this three books on, ab- on abortion, count that three books on abortion. And today we are going to spend the, most of the entire time talking about abortion. Her most recent book, uh, Abortion and the Law, uh, available on, on uh, Amazon and every place else you want to buy books. Uh, I read this book in the last few days, and I thought I knew so much about abortion, and it turns out I know very little <laughs> about a lot of the abortion controversy, and I thought I knew more than that. So, uh, Mary, it is great to have you here. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So let's start with this, because because you're, this is not going to be just a Supreme Court podcast, and your book goes well beyond uh, the battles in courts over abortion. If you had to identify three big myths about abortion relating to anything about abortion, law or otherwise, what what might those be? I think probably the biggest one is that we can explain everything by reference to the Supreme Court. Um, it's not surprising that we believe that myth because most of the people who've spread it are lawyers and kind of Supreme Court obsessives, like I'm sure the two of us are. But uh, the, a lot of what matters in the abortion conflict either began before Roe um, or took shape after Roe for reasons unrelated to the Supreme Court. Um, I think that kind of relates to a second myth, which is the idea that the Supreme Court could kind of solve the abortion conflict. And that's there are different ways people spin that argument. Um, anti-abortion folks seem to make that argument by claiming that if the Supreme Court simply kind of removed itself from the abortion business, uh, we would not have dysfunctional abortion debates anymore. Progressives have a kind of flavor of this argument that if the Supreme Court had a kind of better justification for abortion rights, like potentially equal protection, then the abortion debate would become less dysfunctional. I think the more you dig into the history of abortion law and politics, you recently, you realize that the dysfunction runs, I think, a lot deeper than anything um, the Supreme Court could solve. And then I think finally, uh, Probably one of the other myths is just that the, what makes the American abortion debate unique is sim- boils down only to religion. Religion is certainly part of it, um, and Americans are more religious, both in the sense of self-identification and religiosity than people in other countries. But uh, American party politics on abortion are unique and kind of uniquely disturbing, too. Um, and it's in politicians' best interest, Donald Trump chief among them, but others, too, to use abortion as a wedge issue um, and to deepen differences on abortion. So I think those are the three myths that occur most readily to me. There's a lot to unpack in all three of those. Thank you. That's a great way to start. Um, by the way, I would call myself an anti-Supreme Court obsessive, but it's probably the same thing uh, at the end of it, as, as opposed to a Supreme Court obsessive. Um, I, so let's, let's begin with kind of a combination of myths one and two, okay? Um, and okay, first I want to... I think we're going to disagree some during this podcast, so I'm going to hold that off just for a minute, um, but uh, uh, on a very small part of the history. Uh, so throughout this book, this excellent book that everyone should read if they're interested in abortion, uh, you talk about how there is much more to this than Supreme Court interference, and I, I, I understand that. 
the how much more I'm curious about, because you also say in this book, and I, I agree with this 100 percent, that a lot of the debate after Roe was centered on what we do about Roe mm-hmm. as a constitutional matter. And then a lot of the debate since Casey had, and I'm assuming some level of knowledge upon our uh, viewership or listenership, a lot that happened after Casey is about applying this undue burden test, which is really a, not really a test at all, uh, to, to new situations. Both of those dynamics are very court-centered. So I guess I'd ask you about mm-hmm. that. That seems like a big part of your book. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, certainly, the, at least if you fast forward to the 80s, the anti-abortion movement had recognized that the only really productive thing that that movement could do in terms of big picture goals would be to get rid of Roe v. Wade. Um, the kind of underlying goal of the movement, which you saw kind of pop up in 2019, is still to ban all abortions, including in right. cases of rape or incest. And you begin to see kind of bubble up this tension between strategy, which has been in many ways court-centric. Both of these movements are often dominated by lawyers who are themselves Supreme Court obsessives and actual underlying <laughs> are we all? agendas. Sorry. <laughs> right, yeah, well, no, no, we're not, right? Most people in my family, you know, don't care at all and don't want to hear me talk about it. So there's plenty of people who are who are not. But I, agree. I think th- there were the goals of the movements um, remained kind of completely independent of the court. And there were always lots of activists within both movements who rejected the strategies that were sort of tailored to the court. Right. On the anti-abortion side, you see that in the kind of absolutist swing of the movement. You see it in Operation Rescue and clinic blockades. You see it in anti-abortion violence. Um, On the pro-choice side, you see it in the kind of ongoing push for reproductive justice, basically a more sort of ambitious progressive agenda that the Supreme Court would never embrace and that is actually sort of almost in contradiction with some Supreme Court precedent on what a right means. So I think if you're thinking about um, the social movements in terms of the people who were making arguments in court or even the people who are the sort of dominating discussion in D.C., you're right that the court often played a central role, but the movements, of course, were big tents and they were almost really civil wars about the extent to which the Supreme Court should be dictating strategy that unfolded over and over again in the period I was studying. So that, that I, that's, I appreciate that. That's, um, I get that, I think. Um, so part of my vision about the role abortion politics has played in America since 1970, mm-hmm. at least, um, is that Unlike other issues, it feels like abortion dictates political consequences elsewhere more than Mm -hmm. other issues. So although, I mean, Miranda may have led to Nixon's law and order campaign to some degree and the Second Amendment Mm -hmm. much later on may have had some role, the number one, in my opinion, the number one consistent money raiser for the GOP and for the, I guess, Democrats, you can tell us. I don't know the answer to that. The number one constitutional issue of my lifetime, I'm 62, um, and I've been doing this for 30 years, and before my career, was abortion. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that's different than other issues? Uh, in a way, yeah. I mean, I think um, we don't really have it, – it's counterfactual up to a point, right? So, I mean, having – and I don't know this debate as well, but I would not be surprised if the Supreme Court – were to revisit its Second Amendment decisions if you wouldn't see a similar um, kind of outcome. Mm -hmm. At least having briefly studied and known people 
who are kind of adjacent to the anti-abortion work I've done in the Second Amendment movement or the kind of gun rights movement, I think you would have a very similar um, kind of outcome. But we don't, of course, have a Roe v. Wade of gun rights. Um, and I think the abortion issue also had a kind of unique way of uniting, um, and Ronald Reagan, of course, recognizes this, uniting uh, Catholic and evangelical conservative Christians. And there was also, I think, Roe v. Wade coincidentally was useful to the GOP at a time when um, Ronald Reagan was not going to run for a third term. And the GOP had to kind of find a way of framing its constitutional commitments that would appeal to the kind of boomers who at the time were not all in line on abortion, not all anti-abortion, um, and social conservatives who, of course, were. And Roe, I think, wound up being the poster child for that argument, this sort of judicial activism argument that Federalist Society and other conservative um, legal movement types made. Uh, and so I think I don't it's hard to say if Roe would have done that, but for what the GOP and conservative lawyers made Roe mean. Um, if it just if you take just what the Supreme Court had said in 73 and nothing that came after in terms of its popular interpretation, I don't know what would have happened. But Roe became a really important symbol in the conservative legal movement um, in a way really that was almost partially disconnected from what the court said in 1973. So I think you're right. It's just um, what we mean when we talk about Roe. It's important to be precise about because only some of those meanings that came to be so politically significant came from the Supreme Court in 1973. Well, that's a great point, And we should remind every point and, and we should remind everybody Roe was seven to two. It was not a five to four Republican Democrat type opinion. Um, but but here's where I get a little bit lost when I talk to law professors like um, Reva Siegel, no relation at Yale, and Linda Greenhouse of the New York Times, now at Yale, who who I've publicly had kind of some issues with about the whole backlash stuff with Roe. I get mm -hmm. your argument and their argument that on the page, in fact, I've written in my book that, that on the page, Roe is not an outlier. It's more important than other cases, but the method of decision-making is, is no different than a hundred of other cases. Um, but, but here's my question. Maybe a more sophisticated Supreme Court in 1973 could have seen this coming. And what I mean by that is Ruth Bader Ginsburg has said, you know, one of the most important pro-choice legal defenders ever, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has said famously, we decided too much in one fell swoop. That's her quote. And that she, in retrospect, would have liked to, the court have gone much slower which would have made the political reaction not so fierce. I mm -hmm. think there's some blame to lay at the feet of those seven justices in Roe to not understand the uniqueness of this issue, even in 1973. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Um, I think the only issue I have with that argument is in studying the anti-abortion movement for as long as I have, I don't think there is an argument if, you, if the outcome was going to be the Supreme Court recognizes some even very limited form of abortion rights, I don't think that there's a way to have justified that constitutionally that would have convinced the anti-abortion movement. And you can start to see this happening again, where you see in states like Alabama, anywhere where people are being honest about what they want in the anti-abortion movement. What they want is a ban on abortion. They may or may not have an exception for the life of the pregnant person, 
But that's pretty much it. And any outcome short of that is not going to be acceptable. So, I mean, I think that there was a tremendous amount of hubris that Harry Blackman had in thinking sure. that Roe could settle the abortion conflict. And there's tons of archival evidence that he actually believed that that was true, that he would just sort of, you know, wave a <laughs> wand and everybody would get along. That That's ridiculous. And I think <laughs> probably the way Roe was written um, reflected that hubris and maybe exacerbated things a little. Um, but again, I don't I don't know what the court could have done, given that people had staked out pretty absolute positions on abortion and were not going to be happy or really go away politically until they achieve those outcomes, which are, are, in my opinion, kind of politically impossible to achieve. So I think the Supreme Court definitely made things worse. But um, I don't know if the court had kind of followed Ginsburg's playbook and gone more slowly or taken a more kind of convincing jurisprudential approach if the anti-abortion movement would have ended up in that different of a place than what we see now. Well, let's talk about the anti-abortion movement for a minute circa 1975, because I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding Mm -hmm. about the role of evangelicals in this movement. I have a question, then a comment, then a question. Mm-hmm. If, am I correct that in 1970 or 71, okay. mm-hmm. half of the Catholics in America weren't opposed to abortion? Is that right? I think that's right, yeah. Okay. So there wasn't any kind of Catholic religious groundswell at that time. And my understanding, and, and this I'm almost sure about, is Jerry Falwell was asked at some point in the mid-1970s, at least two or three years after Roe, about abortion, and Falwell's response was, eh, I don't really care. I'm kind of indifferent. Isn't that true also? Yeah, and um, the, most of the major evangelical organizations were very slow to take positions on abortion, partially because, while not all Catholics were opposed to abortion, m- most of the people in the early anti-abortion movement were Catholic. Okay. And evangelicals, like Falwell for a time, were turned off by anything they associated with Catholicism. So the anti-abortion movement to evangelicals looked like sort of this Catholic thing they wanted no part of. And so it took a while before um, you had a a big kind of groundswell of support among conservative evangelicals. And that's what kills me, Mary. I have to be honest. And and this is an issue that I want to be honest about uh, uh, with the audience anyway. Um, I I am pro-choice all the way down. I am very skeptical about Roe versus Wade and Casey. So with that said, um, this is what kills me. So I don't think the evangelical leaders of the 1970s cared at all about abortion as an issue. They only cared about it when Ed Meese came calling and said, you can come into our movement and we will, we will change America. We will take over the South. You know, we will combine with Catholics in a friendly way. We will be part of a movement. And... If I'm right about that timeline, and I think I am, and I am no friend of evangelicals, they hate me and I hate them, Um, but if if I'm right about that timeline, then when I meet someone in 2020 who says to be truly interested in the fetus, for example, or truly believes it hurts women somehow to have the choice whether to have abortion. And, I, and then I asked them why they think that, where they got it from. If it dates back to that evangelical shift, then I'm thinking there's a lot of insincerity going on here. And this was politics. This was, Fa- I mean, this was Falwell's way of making money because he's a shyster and his son's a shyster. So what's your reaction to that? Well, I, I think, um, I don't know. It, it's sort of, I mean, I don't, 
know what people were thinking. I don't know what their motives were, but there was certainly um, a political dimension to what a lot of evangelical leaders were doing. Um, I think, and there certainly was an opportunity that Ed Meese and Ronald Reagan took advantage of, and a really like a kind of badly needed opportunity because Reagan had won in 1980 and really 1984 too because of his star power. People just liked him. It was sort of a personality, um, not a kind of a cohesive movement. And abortion and Roe, I mean, really more judicial activism than just abortion, was a way of bringing all these people together, in including conservative Catholics and evangelicals who had really not been getting along at all. And I think Fowell certainly recognized that and did make a ton of money off of that. I don't know if he was doing that purely for financial gain or just making money and doing it for other reasons too. I have no idea, but right. it was certainly a pretty powerful and successful thing. Um, and we're still, you know, living with the legacy now. So, so that's, so that's beautifully said. And, and that's why I, when I have debates about abortion outside the courts, you know, not, not what the court should or shouldn't do, but what legislature should do, what the American people should do. Um, I, I just I am I am skeptical of of the evangelical sincerity on this issue, not the rank and file, not people watching at home, but evangelical leaders. You don't have to agree or disagree. That's just my observation. Is it is it true? Do you know that my understanding is after Ronald Reagan campaigned that he would nominate the first female Supreme Court justice? I, I applaud that. I think that was a nice promise and he kept it. And after he nominated Sandra Day O'Connor, because there were like three women in the country, right, who were eligible, three Republican women in the country would have been eligible mm -hmm. in 1980. One, um, that the evangelicals were so upset that Ed Meese, who was Reagan's, who was in fact, who, become Reg who would become Reagan's attorney general, but was at that time just a, a chief of staff or something, I don't remember, um, or not, uh, he brought the evangelicals to the White House and said, don't worry, we had to do this. The next two are yours, or next three are yours, and then, you know, Scalia and Bork and all that. Um, is that fair? Well, I, I don't know of that meeting. I know that Mises staffers in the aftermath of O'Connor's nomination, and it, the people in the anti-abortion movement were furious. Um, Carolyn Gerster, who was the head of the National Right to Life Committee, which was the biggest anti-abortion group in the country, single issue, at least not like Paul's moral majority, hand-delivered a letter to Ronald Reagan um, saying this woman, Sandra Day O'Connor, is pro-choice and she's the devil incarnate and this is terrible. There were anti-O'Connor rallies in cities across the country. Um, Mary, I was old enough to remember those, sadly. Go ahead. Right, yeah. <laughs> and so um, I think what there's good archival evidence that within Mises' office, his staffers said, wait a minute, this isn't a bad thing. This is an opportunity because these people care so much about the control of the Supreme Court that we can get them on board with us without doing the things Ronald Reagan didn't want to do on abortion. Ronald Reagan didn't want a constitutional amendment banning abortion. He didn't want to spend political capital talking about abortion. He definitely didn't want to spend political capital talking about birth control and other things that some abortion opponents wanted him to talk about. But he wanted all those people to vote for him anyway. And so <laughs> Meese first began to say, we have a solution. We can just say we're against judicial activism. Um, we're going to pick people who are opposed to judicial activism. By judicial activism, we mean Roe v. Wade, so that abortion opponents would understand what they were talking about. And that would be a way that they could nominate a judge that other people, like Federalist Society types, would be comfortable with, right? Not someone who's, you know, a 
hardcore kind of Bible thumping abortion opponent, but still make very clear to the people who had been protesting Sandra Day O'Connor that they had been heard and that Roe v. Wade would be gone. Um, and so I think that that guided nominations after that. And you see, um, again, pretty good archival evidence when you were looking at, for example, Scalia and Bork, people like Pat Buchanan in the White House saying, you know, these nominations are the single biggest issue for conservative Christians and anti-abortion activists. And so if Ronald Reagan wants those people to vote for him again, we have to give them judges they believe will overturn him. That's still true in 2016, right? I, I'm, I'm going to just jump ahead. I'm going to go out of sequence here a little bit. Um, we're, <laughs> That's we're, going okay. to get, we're going to get back to very specific abortion questions. But so it strikes me, and I've said this publicly, and I, and I think I've backed it up. I don't think Trump gets reelected without Roe and Casey. I mean, gets elected without Roe and Casey. I don't think without the evangelical support that he had, he has any chance. I just finished a book by Sarah Posner named Unholy that talks about mm-hmm. the evangelical connections to Donald Trump. But without abortion, that becomes much less powerful, right? Oh, yeah. No, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I, my new book project that I'm working on, which is about the sort of how the abortion fight helped produce Citizens United um, and empowered the GOP. There, I mean, even within the GOP, um, and I can't get that much into that because some of this I, 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 I have confidentiality agreements on until You'd have to kill me if you told me. I, I know <laughs> I know some really good stuff about what happened with Donald Trump and how he got on the ticket and who tried to stop him that I can't say for another couple months. But um, yes, oh, break news here. Wait, this, this is it. This is the launch of my podcast right here. Launch it. I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> we have to have me back on. Right. Um, okay. So maybe uh, when that book is out. But um, there's uh, th- yes, absolutely. I mean, there were a lot of anti-abortion voters who didn't like Donald Trump, to be honest, too, including evangelicals, rank and file voters. Um, they didn't believe that he understood the issue. He, of course, botched it on the campaign trail over and over again. He was sort of deliberately screw up anti-abortion talking points all the time. Um, women in the anti-abortion movement found him repugnant. Uh, There were even late into the nomination process endorsements by anti-abortion groups. Then Holman's Health versus Hellerstedt came down and uh, the anti-abortion movement realized that the Supreme Court, they had hoped and believed that the Supreme Court would treat the undue burden test as unrational, as rational basis, and that they wouldn't really need Donald Trump, right? That they could just sort of hunt on the 2016 election and the Supreme Court would take care of it. Holman's Health proved that that wasn't true. And the only way that it seemed they would get new Supreme Court nominees would be to hold their noses and vote for Donald Trump. Um, And so it's really hard to imagine Trump winning without the support of the conservative Catholics and evangelicals who made the court and abortion their number one issue. So, Mary, I just because I have so many battles in social and on and in social media and in scholarship on that very question, I just want to kind of repeat what I heard to make sure I heard it correctly. One of the foremost experts on abortion in America, who's written three books on the subject, just said without the abortion issue being in and around the courts, it is unlikely Donald Trump would have been elected. Is that fair? I think that's fair. I mean, again, it's hard to know. Yeah, I think that is fair. Okay. Um, I think it's the stop there. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's counterfactual to know it might have worked anyway. I mean, if you had the GOP promising to do something about abortion not involving the courts, um, it's really 100 percent safe to say Donald Trump wouldn't have won without the abortion issue. But I think that control of the courts is really what people were voting for. So I, agree. I, I think that is fair. I think control of the courts is exactly what people were voting for. All right. Um, so I have a question about affirmative action, Second Amendment and abortion. And why abortion is so different than those other two, in my opinion, those other two issues. And let me explain why, and then you can react. So with affirmative action, although there are, of course, you know, many people who think it should go away forever and other people who think, no, we should use more of it, we've reached a pretty good compromise that isn't re- – we're not marching in the streets over affirmative action. You know, kind of this Supreme Court paying lip service to reviewing these programs very carefully, but not really reviewing them very carefully, and universities doing it even though they're not supposed to. But American people kind of shrug and go, okay, that's pretty much that. And with guns, we are definitely seeing compromises. Like we're seeing gun reform proposals that that people on all sides can accept and some they can't. And uh, some of my – really favorite people on the, I want to say the right, but I guess I mean libertarians, are Second Amendment experts, my friend Clark Nelly at, at um, um, Cato and some other places. They're reasonable folks who, will, if the data shows that gun control works, they'll be for it. And if they think it doesn't work, they won't be for it. And it's all rational, much, at least more rational. That's not abortion at all. <laughs> There's nothing similar in the abortion world. Why not? Well, I mean, it, it, there you really have to go back to pre-Roe, because I think um, if you look at the sort of, you know, what people paint as the sort of halcyon pre-court days where everybody was supposed to be hatching these brilliant compromises, like they weren't, right? When there were compromises, everybody hated them. <laughs> they, so the, the anti-abortion movement, um, you know, you if you have a, a discussion, it's it sort of comes down to what people believe about personhood. So if you believe that a fetus or an unborn child is a human being, you think it's not okay to kill a human being who's conceived because of rape, or if even in some cases, if a woman's going to die if, unless she has an abortion. Um, and so from the beginning, the belief systems just didn't really allow for compromise. And there are people because that they believe that for whom that is the issue. People will vote against their self-interest economically and in other ways because they see this as sort of the great human rights issue of the era. Um, there are certainly rational actors on the anti-abortion side when it comes to strategy, um, but there's not a lot of rationality when it comes to what people want, right? What they see as kind of an ideal outcome. The other, the other difference, which I think unfortunately is spreading to other areas of American politics, is that abortion increasingly has turned on these questions of fact, like what abortion restrictions do on the ground, what abortion's effects are. And that's over time meant that people who are on opposing sides of the issue don't consume the same sources of information. They don't trust the same experts. They don't consume the same media. And so increasingly, they don't agree on anything when it comes to the facts and they don't trust one another. They see one another as fundamentally dishonest, um, deluded. Uh, and so having a kind of rational conversation where compromises could come up is almost impossible when you think that your counterparty is either crazy or a liar, which is sort of where we've ended up in abortion politics. So I once wrote two blog posts on why we can't talk about abortion in America. Uh, 
and I, I, I developed an idea there mm-hmm. that I wanted to run by you. I'm sure hopelessly naive, and mm-hmm. people criticize me for a lot of things. Being hopelessly naive is not usually one of them. Um, but so what I try to discuss with people who, who sincerely believe the fetus is a person, and I'm going to go out on a limb. You don't have to react to this to say I don't think a lot of – there are a lot of people who don't sincerely believe that. But there are millions who do. I mean, people in the anti-choice movement, for whom this is a placeholder for other things in culture, especially anti-women issues. But maybe we'll get to that. But, my, but here's what I wondered. A good faith libertarian who mm-hmm. believes that abortion is the killing of a human being, why can't we have a conversation with that person where we say, I understand you believe that, and I can't say you're wrong. Obviously, that's your belief, and you might be right. But half of America, at least half of America, disagrees. That can't be debated. Like, you're holding a belief mm-hmm. that 50% of America disagrees with. And mm-hmm. they'll say, yeah, I, I can't argue the facts on that, sure. And then I'll say, and even if you think it's murder of a person, it still affects the woman dramatically if she can't choose. And most will say, yeah, I'm a libertarian. I believe that too, but murder is murder. And then I say, but why can't you be humble about that opinion? 95% of Americans, or 99, would say cold-blooded— except, everybody except Donald Trump would say cold-blooded murder on Fifth Avenue, you should go to jail, <laughs> right? I mean, we, we, can, we can all congregate around arson of buildings being terrible and, and, and let's hope, slavery being terrible. Why can't a person who believes it's a human being say, I live in a pluralistic society, half of America disagrees, and especially if that person is skeptical of governmental interference, come up with a compromise with the other side where we regulate abortion, the the pro-choice side has to give up some stuff, but we reach some middle ground. I can't reach that person who thinks that the fetus is a person on grounds of humility. And it's really frustrating to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, most... I think most anti-abortion people believe that, and you, you'll still see this. So just recently, um, Notre Dame put out a study that kind of dug into what Americans think about abortion and polling data. And I saw lots of anti-abortion people on social media saying essentially, um, Americans don't understand what abortion is, and they don't understand what Roe and Casey authorize. And if they did, they would be opposed to abortion. So. Even your position that people would say, oh, you know, the facts are the facts and half of the people in the country think abortion should be legal. You wouldn't get agreement on that. Um, the, the general response you would get would be that, yes, it's great that this is a democracy and we as the anti-abortion movement are going to go state by state and ban all abortions. Um, and as soon as we get rid of Roe v. Wade, the outcome is going to be, you know, and if we can't do that, we're going to go to the Supreme Court and get the right people on the Supreme Court. And we're going to have the Supreme Court recognize a right to life. And then we're going to ban abortion in New York and California. That that would probably be the response you would get, um, which would be probably to begin with to say that we live in a democracy, um, but people are supporting abortion based on ignorance. And that if they're not supporting abortion based on ignorance, then they're supporting abortion in contravention of what anti-abortion folks see as constitutional tradition. And they're not afraid to use the courts the way the pro-choice movement did, right? I mean, and and ironically, I think to your point, they haven't learned the lesson that that doesn't always work out the way that you think it might. And it doesn't always have the great consequences you were hoping for. But um, that's, you know, that's coming, um, I think, if if there isn't... um, 
It's not coming soon. I don't see John Roberts doing that. But I, I think there will be a moment in time when abortion opponents make that argument. They made that argument in the 70s before Roe. Right. Um, and the gravest disappointment, I think, of leaders of the anti-abortion movement was not that Roe recognized a right to abortion, but that Roe did not recognize a right to life. There were some in the movement who honestly expected the Supreme Court to do that, um, which goes to show you how important some people see the court as being and also how hard it is to kind of remove the court from this permanently. I think, I think that's where Ruth Bader Ginsburg comes in. I, I, I do one, her, her, her feeling about one fell swoop. Mm-hmm. I do wonder if America 1973, not America 1979 and 80 after Reagan and Meese did their evangelical magic, but America 1973 when half of Catholics in America or more thought women should have a choice um, whether to terminate a pregnancy, um, if there had been a more peaceful, more nuanced approach rather than basically a fundamental right to choose, um, I, I do wonder if we could have evolved to a better place. We'll never know, of course. But I, I do. my heart tells me that could have happened with a better written decision. Maybe one steeped in women's equality would have made for a much better opinion. I'm crazy. Well, yeah, I do. Um, (laughs) You're not the first. Um, (laughs) No, um, I think if the Supreme Court maybe hadn't intervened at all, um, the odds might have been a little bit higher. Um, Thinking that Jerry Falwell or Ed Meese or Ronald Reagan wouldn't have made magic out of an opinion based on women's equality, I think underestimates how strong the anti-feminist movement was at the time. I mean, remember, right, this is when Phyllis Schlafly is mobilizing literally millions of people to say that the women's movement is terrible and that equality will destroy the lives of homemakers all over America. That might have even been worse. I don't know. In terms of having mobilizing power within the religious right, an equality argument would have been really powerfully disturbing to people who are socially conservative. Um, The fact that there was a Supreme Court decision at all, I think, gave people like me a single target, right? When you were talking about abortion, abortion had been a powerful mobilizing issue in 1972. It was a powerful mobilizing issue on a state-by-state basis for abortion opponents. But it's it was harder, I think, to organize around the idea of, you know, look what happened to abortion in Arizona or New York or whatever. It was there were a lot of different abortion struggles. Politicians still made lots of political hay out of that. And I don't underestimate the ability of Reagan or Meese to do that even without a Supreme Court decision, but it was easier to focus on a Supreme Court decision. So the Supreme Court getting involved kind of created a bullseye that might not otherwise have existed for the GOP. A better crafted opinion, maybe. I mean, it certainly would have potentially foreclosed the argument that Roe is just a garbage decision and the court is making it up and this is just, you know, the political judiciary. That argument might have been weaker. But if we're talking about mobilizing social conservatives, I don't think I think an equality argument um, wouldn't have helped. And I mean, if even if you take a look at how people like that saw Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was proposed as a Supreme Court nominee, it was not, you know, a celebration of her work on sex equality. It was her being a kind of um, symbol of a kind of feminism that they saw as being destructive of their religious traditions. For for the record, as Christopher Sprigman of NYU recently said on Twitter, which, of course, I ate up, 
Um, virtually all of constitutional law is just made up by the Supreme Court, and Roe is no outlier when it comes to method. But that's a different podcast. That's just Siegel on the Supreme. Mm-hmm. That's Siegel and Sprigman on the Supreme Court. Um, can you spend just a, a couple minutes uh, talking about what I think your book describes, but I may be wrong, as an uneasy relationship between women of color and the pro-choice movement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, probably the the founding moment of that uneasy relationship is what went down with the Hyde Amendment. Um, as most listeners know, the Hyde Amendment bans Medicaid reimbursement for abortion. Um, it was incredibly important for the anti-abortion movement. It was sort of the blueprint for the incremental restrictions that we see now that are leading probably to the unraveling of Roe v. Wade. Um, the, the, the pro-choice movement, I think, consciously and consistently didn't do a whole lot about the Hyde Amendment. And the reasons for that were complicated. In part, it was sort of an assumption that the Supreme Court would just take care of it, right? That sooner or later, the Supreme Court would strike down the Hyde Amendment. But some of it was also a sense that the Hyde Amendment and issues that concerned um, Black women and other women of color didn't pull well. They didn't help raise money. And the pro-choice movement, by the time you get to the late 1970s, very much wants to be a power player in D.C. politics, and taking seriously concerns that black women, poor women, and non-white women had was not really advancing that agenda. And so from that moment onward, there were a lot of tensions between the pro-choice movement and women of color. The pro-choice movement was a heavily white movement. Um, there were times, I think, when the pro-choice movement tried to kind of broaden its agenda and, and take on what we might now call concerns about reproductive justice. So issues beyond abortion, like whether that's forced sterilization or access to contraception or a living wage and the ability to parent the children you have, any of that. But usually in moments when it felt like Roe was in jeopardy, um, the pro-choice movement kind of retreated to single issue politics, to talking about choice as opposed to anything else, and generally sort of telling women of color that they would have to wait until Roe was safe. And variations on that theme, I think, are still playing out, although starting in the 1990s, the reproductive justice movement became more powerful um, and began to have more sway when it came either to kind of Democratic Party politics. You can see the position the party's taken on the Hyde Amendment, kind of Joe Biden's conversion on the Hyde Amendment is evidence of that. The reproductive justice movement is definitely more influential, but I think it's interesting and telling that the kind of big pro-choice piece of legislation which everyone is looking at, if there is, for example, if Joe Biden wins in 2020 and Donald Trump actually accepts it and leaves and the Senate were controlled by Democrats, um, the Women's Health Protection Act is the big bill, the kind of big pro-choice bill that everyone is talking about. And there's nothing about abortion funding in that bill. There's nothing about contraception in that bill. It's just abortion restrictions um, that primarily probably uh, bother people who are not poor women of color. So right. there's a kind of, right. um, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same right. aspect to that history that we haven't entirely escaped. When the Hyde Amendment, which really did hurt poor women of all colors when it comes to securing abortions, mm-hmm. uh, maybe people, I'm sure women of color just disproportionately, when that came before the Supreme Court of the United States in the mid-70s, I want to make an Eric point here, and you don't, you can respond or not, it's up to you. This is kind of like super legal realism <laughs> on steroids. But – and I'm not saying it all – I'm not in any way suggesting it all comes down to this. But I think this is a significant part of what's going on. The Supreme Court was all white and all male, both when it decided mm-hmm. Roe and when it decided the Hyde Amendment case. 
And I think there is something to the idea that these privileged, mostly privileged, white males wanted their daughters to be able to secure legal abortions, which they could, of course, get at a doctor's office and paid for through any kind of different ways. But they couldn't relate to women of color in the inner cities who really were facing a desperate, still do today, but back then too, facing a desperate choice between bringing another person into the world in a very bad psychologically, physically, economically, emotionally situation, but couldn't afford on their own to get an abortion. And those five of those nine white men had no appreciation for that. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. And I think um, there's actually evidence in the opinions, because one of the things the courts would were saying, both in Maher versus Roe and the Hyde Amendment case, Harris versus McRae, was essentially, you know, the government had nothing to do with this. Like, if you're poor, that's just, you know, sort of too bad, right? That just bad luck. The idea that the government had nothing to do with the situations in which people of color found themselves, like there was no de jure segregation, that was not a thing, there, that had nothing to do with where people went to school or where people lived or none of that. That was just sort of all like, you know, just the doggy dog world that Charles Darwin described. Like that, <laughs> that was sort of how they saw this. And that, you know, there's no way, I mean, if you had experienced any of that, that would just be a joke, right? But to people who had never had to experience any of that, and probably especially men, that was a plausible thing to believe. I don't think they were trying to sound ignorant, but in in retrospect, you know, especially at a time when obviously everybody is talking about structural racism, that that argument seems especially kind of silly. And what's so frustrating about that for me is Justice Marshall told them and they wouldn't listen, but leaving leaving that issue aside. Mary, I could talk to you for like three days. Um, uh, We have to do kind of a lightning round round here because we are getting close to the end. But I really, I could talk to you for three days. all right, let's bring us back to, to On the Ground 2020. My thesis about John Roberts is he didn't want to affect the election, period, full stop. That's why he mm-hmm. voted the way he did in June Medical. That's number one. Number two, maybe he was pissed off at the Fifth Circuit for flagrantly violating <laughs> a Supreme Court decision. Yeah. Why do you think John Roberts voted the way he did? Well, I mean, first of all, John Roberts, I think if you if you believe all the stuff about John Roberts as an institutionalist, which I do, I think that means he's scared of backlash. Right. And this to me was John Roberts sort of first draft of an abortion opinion kind of beginning to eliminate abortion rights that is backlash proof, because essentially what he did is said, oh, oh, God, no, we would never overturn this precedent of four years ago. We're going to just completely undo the holding of the ruling that we decided four years ago and replace it with a completely different rule when it comes to the undue burden test. The reason people cared about Holman's health, the reason that was in large part why anti-abortion voters managed to hold their nose and vote for Donald Trump was because it made the undue burden test mean something. And John Roberts said, OK, no, not anymore, actually. Now it's just going to be either back to what it was in Casey or even less than that. It's going to be Gonzalez versus Carhartt deference to legislators all day, every day. So he did that, which to me is sort of tantamount to overruling Holman's health, all while writing this kind of ode to precedent and how he, John Roberts, would never disturb precedent. So it's even more than the election. I mean, I think that's kind of a blueprint for how he goes about it after this, because what he cares about, I think, in my opinion, is 
making the court and probably even more to the point himself look bad. And if he can write an opinion where people in the in the progressives celebrate how John Roberts is this great nonpartisan hero, while in fact functionally overruling the 2016 case, which is what everybody, uh-oh, which is what everybody cared about, then he'll do it over and over again until there's very little of Roe left. I mean, I thought it was even more kind of canny and Machiavellian than people seem to think it was. But, but he, okay, so just real quick, but he is Machiavellian. I mean, there's no question about it. The way he, mm-hmm. the way, in Shelby County versus Holder, the huge voting rights case that everybody watching this will have heard of or listening to this, he literally used an ellipsis to change a landmark 1965 voting rights decision, where a 1965 mm-hmm. Supreme Court case said there's no such thing as equal state sovereignty once you come into the union. Before the union, yes, but once you admitted no, he admitted he, he omitted the once you come in part with an ellipse and cited the case for the opposite pro- proposition which it stood for and then used it again four years later. So um, on affirmative action, he's reversed numerous cases in the First Amendment. This whole idea that he's not going to reverse prior cases is not only Machiavellian, it's a lie. Sorry for that rant. You triggered me. I'm done with that rant. Um, but um, I, I do think your explanation for that was really, um, well, better than anyone that I <laughs> Okay. Um, okay. I guess I have one final question, and it's, it's a hard one. Is there hope at all on this issue of compromise? Because I, So as I said before, I'm pro-choice all the way down, and I think I could compromise with someone who believed the fetus was a person on the grounds that this is America and we have to live with each other. And although I would give women unfettered discretion prior to viability at all times to terminate a pregnancy, I understand you, anti-choice person, doesn't. Let's talk and negotiate. But I don't. Is there any hope for that? Um, not in the foreseeable future. I mean, I think that there would be a way to get back to that. Um, I think it would help if we did less of what John Roberts seems to want us to do, which is to fight about what abortion is really like. Um, I think the more we get into a world of kind of alternative facts and distrust of health authorities, the harder that conversation becomes because we don't have the same starting point anymore. We just think that the other person is a lunatic and move on. Um, I think it would also probably help get us closer to that if we could agree that we cared about issues that were not abortion that might help make abortion less common, like maternal health outcomes. It's disturbing to me that you don't see people agreeing on that, right? I mean, anti-choice and pro-choice folks or pro-life and anti-abortion, whatever, should all be able to agree that it's bad that the U.S. has an abysmal record on maternal health outcomes. But you don't see a lot of working together on that by people who care a lot about maternal outcomes in other ways. So I I don't think it's impossible. I just don't know. (laughs) American party politics would have to change a lot in order for compromise to be possible. Um, The way we relate to science and the media would probably have to change a lot. Um, so I, I don't think it's impossible because I think if you one of the most optimistic things is if you actually talk to people who oppose abortion and people who are in favor of abortion, you realize that a lot of these are fairly nice, good people who are honest. And that gives me hope. But then if you look kind of you zoom out at where the debate is and where politicians are driving us in the debate, it's it's a darker and darker place. So how, how you get back to the part, place where yeah. you have sensible conversations with good people, I'm not sure. 
my bias there, my, my prior is that I don't think evangelical leaders are acting in good faith, but we'll leave that aside. Um, and they're a big part of this. Mm-hmm. If Jerry Falwell Jr. announced to his millions of TV viewers or whatever, or whoever responds to him tomorrow, let's compromise. They compromise. I, I, I think that's a real problem. But anyway, Mary, this has been fantastic. I, 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 learned, I learned so much from your book, which frankly, I'm arrogant enough to think I thought I knew much about, but didn't. Um, and I really recommend everybody who's interested in learning about both sides. You, you wrote that book I didn't know I, – I mean, I kind of know who you are as a professional, so I, I have guesses. But a person reading that book would not know if you are pro-choice or not. And I think that is an amazing thing for an author, to write a book on abortion and have the reader come away and go, that was balanced. That was both sides. I really got both sides here in, in, equal, in equal ways. And I have to say that's one of the most amazing feats I've seen in, in the abortion context. And that's one of the reasons – I wanted to have you on, and I really appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that means a lot. Thanks for having me. And one last thing. I may have to have you back because I noticed last week that you wrote an article. And we're not going to talk about it now. I'm just going to plug it kind of uh, in some law review questioning. This is a whole different subject, but it's so fascinating to me. Questioning whether people in in favor of same-sex rights and same-sex marriage and all that should view, if I'm wrong about this, tell me, should view sexual orientation as immutable or not? I always assumed it's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. We should assume it's immutable. It's like race and we move on. You question that in this article. Um, I have to have you back on to talk about that because I find that fascinating. Can we do that sometime? <laughs> that <laughs> Are you willing to come good. back to do that? That would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, Mary. Really appreciate it.